my name is Tim Pazwine, pastor at LaRue Baptist Church in LaRue, Ohio. How many of you have ever heard of LaRue? Okay. Most people haven't. Most people in our county don't even know where it is. But uh, let me just kind of give you part of my story. Um, I came to LaRue in 1985, so I've been pastor there for 33 years. And um, in my first year in as a pastor, right, I'm, I'm lost. I can't figure out. People are coming to me with problems, and I, I can't figure I mean, I'm, I'm out of seminary. I've done the whole seminary thing, and I don't have a clue what to say to anybody. And I was really, really, really struggling. And um, a friend of mine who'd gone to Faith Baptist in Lafayette sent me a pamphlet. And I'm thinking, oh, this looks interesting. Maybe, maybe this would be helpful. And on the back was an endorsement by Jay Adams. And I thought, oh, no, not that nut. Uh, is he behind this? Oh, well, I'm desperate enough. I'm going to go. I might be able to learn a few things. And um, I think it was probably about the second week I was converted. I can remember one of my mentors, Dr. Bob Smith, saying, if you believe that psychology is necessary, then you have to believe that Jesus Christ left the church ill-equipped for 1,900 years until a God-hater by the name of Sigmund Freud came along and told us how people really operate. And I count that as a moment of my conversion to the sufficiency of Scripture because I couldn't argue with that. And there was another guy there by the name of Randy Patton. Randy would come down every Monday from the church he had up in Fort Wayne. And, and I was really struggling. And I remember saying to Randy, Randy, because in those days what we did was there were this 12-week course. I would go to Lafayette every Monday at 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock would be lecture. 12 to 2 during lunch would be case studies. And then from 2 to 9, we would sit in and, and observe counseling cases. It was great. And, uh, and so I said to Randy one time, Randy Patton, I said, um, look, I'm really struggling. Can, can I have breakfast with you before we start class? He goes, yeah, sure. And uh, I'll never forget what he told me that day. We were sitting there. I was telling him, all, you know, we got all these problems. I don't know what's going on. And he said, look. And I'm just about quoting him word for word now from 32 years ago. A successful ministry is not a ministry without problems. It's a ministry that solves problems God's way. And man, that was encouraging to me. And from that point on, things changed in our church. I would say that in terms of, of ministry, biblical counseling kept saved me in this sense. Um, I think I would have quit the ministry decades ago if it hadn't been for biblical counseling. And the whole atmosphere of our church changed. It became a church that's interested and devoted to making disciples, which means not just learning a bunch of truth and filling in blanks in a book, but people who, um, as another one of my mentors once said, Pastor Bill Good, um, people are translating truth into life. And so I'm really committed to biblical counseling. I've been involved in it now for 32 years and I've been involved in it long enough to remember when Joe Propri was the only certified counselor in the whole state of Ohio. That was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be a part of this. And so um, we want to talk about grace today. A lot of people talking about grace. What does it have to do with biblical counseling? So let's, let's pray, ask God to, to guide our thinking and... Um, 
And let's look into that. Father, thank you again for your great mercy to us in Jesus. Thank you for the truth of your word. We pray now that, that what we say today would be a... Um, Lord, would, would, would help us in our counseling ministry. Help us now, we pray, as we think this through. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, how do you respond to Bob? How do you respond to Bob, your counselee, when he comes to you and says, Pastor, I really did lousy this week. I know God's displeased with me and, and that I need greater discipline or I'm in big trouble. Now, one response could be, Bob, you know that godliness comes through discipline. You've got to get with it. You've got to discipline yourself. You've, you've got to try harder. Or would you say, Bob, you're not on the performance treadmill. God doesn't love you any more or any less because of your failure. He does not accept you on the basis of your achievement. He accepts you on the basis of his work in Christ. God deals with you on the basis of grace, not performance. So which do you think is more biblical? Which do you think is the more biblical, um, more accurate way of responding to Bob? And I would propose to you it's the second statement. All right? Now, if you're going to counsel in a way that's biblical, we need to get a handle on the whole issue of grace. Now, a lot of people are afraid of grace. It can be frightening. It always has stirred up controversy and discomfort. Several years ago, Don Miller wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, and he said this, I was in that phase of trying to discipline myself to behave as if I loved light and not behave as if I loved darkness. I used to get really ticked about preachers who talked too much about grace because they tempted me not to, not to be disciplined. I figured that people, what people needed was a kick in the butt, and if I failed at godliness, it was because those around me weren't trying hard enough. I believed if word got out about grace, the whole church was going to turn into a brothel. Now, that's the way a lot of people think about grace. It's if you push grace too much, then people are just going to do what they want to do. You know, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verse 1, right? And, and when the Apostle Paul wrote that, what shall we say then? Shall we sin so that grace may abound? He wasn't just pulling that out of thin air. Someone had said that to him. And they were saying to him, to, okay, Paul, are you saying then since God freely accepts us on the, solely on the basis of what Jesus did without any consideration of my performance, then I can do whatever I want, right? And what does he respond to that? No. No, that's not what grace means. Now, let me assure you, I'm not here to, to, to advocate an antinomian counseling model, okay? But I think we have to bring back grace into the central place that it occupies because that's what the Bible says. Um, our counseling model ought to grow out of the scriptures, and we need to do this because if our counseling isn't grace-focused, it won't be biblical and it, won't, and it will be ineffective, now, what I have to say regarding grace and counseling is a result of reflection on a lot of different things. Um, Jerry Bridges has been very helpful to me in, um, in helping me understand grace. And, and I can say this is not a theoretical discussion for me because this understanding of grace has profoundly influenced my counseling and life in our congregation. And so um, we need to talk about this because... The Bible makes much of it, and if it does, then so should we. All right? Now, we've got to talk about rejecting a too typical approach to biblical counseling. 
legalistic or performance-oriented counseling can grow out of the proper rejection of the Keswick theology of Christian growth and counseling. Now, that, that may seem new to you, that term Keswick. Keswick is a, is a town in England where they used to have these Bible conferences, and Keswick theology would say things like this, let Jesus live his life through you, right? Let Jesus live his life through you. Let go and let God. Any, and this is the one that used to get me, any effort that you expend for your spiritual growth has to be the flesh. If you're expending any effort for godliness, then it's nothing but the flesh. You're trying too hard. You just need to believe. Or what I grew up with every year at Bible camp, right? Come forward, dedicate yourself to Jesus, and your struggle with sin will be lessened considerably, and you'll be able to live for Jesus like you ought to. Some of the um, most influential writings in this came from a guy by the name of Watchman Nee, who just really pushed this and became very, very popular. But this is what we call the Keswick theology of Christian growth and counseling. And, and we wanted to reject that. I know when I was first exposed to biblical counseling, it just blew this out of the water for me. And we started then to teach, I did, started to teach our people, our counselees, a biblical approach to change. We said to them, the word of God must have a renewing effect on your mind and your actions. We said, you have to utilize God's means of growth, God's means of grace, prayer. You've got to be at church. There has to be attendance to church and worship and fellowship. Faith is important. Trials and hardships are God's means of grace. But most of all, we would say, in reaction to that Keswick kind of theology, most of all, God requires a great expenditure of effort. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, right? Godliness comes through discipline. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, where the Apostle Paul draws that metaphor of the, the fighter who's training, and he buffets himself, and he trains himself, right? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, to your faith add these things, and, and that word where he talks about adding these things to your faith is a very strong, strong word. Um, we were told, we're told, put off the old man which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be renewed in the attitude of your mind and put on the new man which is created to be like God after true righteousness and holiness. So we would emphasize that over and over. But in our reaction to these pietistic approaches of counseling and growth, it led us, I think, to a subtle legalism in our counseling. Um, we communicated to our counselors that they must exercise their will. Right? They've got to discipline themselves for godliness. They have to be active in their growth. They have to expend energy if they're going to grow. No sweat, no holiness. We would emphasize with them over and over. And we, however inadvertently, led them to believe that they must perform if they would be acceptable to God. Our counselees seemed to get the idea that God accepted them not on the basis of imputed righteousness, but on the basis of imparted righteousness. Now, do you know the difference between the two, right? Imputed righteousness, where God takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes it to our account, so God looks at our record. Imparted righteousness is the righteousness that God works in us as we grow, okay? And so we subtly but, but clearly communicated at times that God accepts you not on the basis of your imputed righteousness, 
but on the basis of imparted righteousness. And if you're honest with yourself, you can always say, I don't know about you, this is where I am. Man, I really need to grow. I still got areas, (laughs) areas, where I really, really need to grow. And if God accepts me on the basis of that, I'm in trouble. And, and we almost always majored on Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, while the whole time ignoring chapters 1 through 3. We were isolating duty from God's grace, you see. And I can remember this when I first came to the doctrines of grace and so forth. I can remember, you know, Ephesians 1 through 3 was everything. When I got into biblical counseling, Ephesians 4 through 6 became everything. I very rarely put the two together, Okay. I was always, now I'm always in four through six and not saying anything about one through three, right? And so our counselees became discouraged and disheartened because they could never do enough. They could never discipline themselves enough so that God was pleased with them. And they learned, however inadvertently, that their growth was ultimately dependent on them. All right? And so in our reaction, a subtle legalism creeped in, and however inadvertently, it it became too much a part of our counseling so that we became legalistic. Now, I say we, I should say me. I know I did. I know I did. You ever notice how your wife is really perceptive, guys? Remember my wife saying to me, I don't know, this biblical counseling kind of sounds legalistic because she was getting it from me, (laughs) right? I was like, No, you just don't understand. But that's what was going on. And so we have to understand the grace of God in Jesus. Now look, here's what I think happens. Without the anchor of grace, you end up with two types of counselees. Right? If you're not anchored in grace, this is what will happen. You end up with deceived, self-righteous counselees. Okay? Or you end up with despairing, immobilized counselees. First of all, if you don't emphasize grace, it's God accepts you by grace, not on the basis of your performance. He, he, he accepts you. He loves you on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. All right? If we don't have that, we end up on one end with deceived self-righteous counselees, okay? This is, the, this is the, the kind of background I grew up in was this, all right? And when I say this now, the, us old guys who grew up in this, this just doesn't even resonate with so many people, but the tradition I grew up in was this. Christians do not, they do not smoke. They do never drink alcohol. They don't go to movies, and I know that really sounds weird to some of you, but that was it. You do not go to the theater. Mm -mm. That's worldliness. No Christian will ever go to the theater. You don't play cards, right? Now, you could play Rook, (laughs) Baptist poker, we used to call it, uh, because it didn't have the evil face cards in them. Uh, You couldn't play cards. Uh, You couldn't dance. No dancing allowed, although square dancing was okay. But ballroom dancing was not out. out. No, no Christian is going to do that. right? By the way, you know what a legalist was? Someone who had more rules than we did. If they said, it's wrong to have a television. Oh, you legalist. right? doesn't matter that we could watch the same movies on our television a few years later. 
on a libertine, you know, he was the one who had lesser rules, fewer rules than us, right? But here's the point I'm trying to make. What we tend to do is if we think that God accepts us on the basis of our performance, we can all come up with a list of rules that we can keep. And we say, God accepts me. Because I'm not, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do, right? I'm okay with God. And so we end up in deceived self-righteousness. Or or you end up despairing because if you're honest with yourself, you, you just never seem to quite make the grade, right? What God tells us to do is so beyond human ability. And so we end up despairing. You end up with counselees who are despairing. They're immobilized. They, they're not growing at all, right? Because they say, I just can't do it. God will never accept me. All right, so because of the rejection of something that was wrong, we swing the pendulum to the other way, or, or as, as uh, Pastor Good used to call it, we, we run into the other ditch, right? Um, so what we want to have is a biblical model that grows out of the Scripture. So biblical counseling should recognize not not just how nice grace is, but the necessity of grace for all change and growth. A proper understanding of grace is absolutely necessary for change and growth. Now, Romans chapter 6, I think, is a pivotal chapter. And there we find that God's grace is the necessary foundation for all change and growth. And we can change according to Romans 6. Because God graciously transfers you from one era and domain into another. Now let me tell you how I understand Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is making the point that if you have a proper understanding of grace, it's not going to make you want to sin more. Because grace doesn't operate that way. And here's what he does. In Romans chapter 6, he's trying to tell you that grace accomplishes something. And he uses two metaphors. The first metaphor is the metaphor of death, okay? The second metaphor, that's 6, 1 through 14. The second metaphor is verses 15 to the end of the chapter, where he uses the metaphor of a new master. So he's trying to make the point that what grace does is delivers you from the tyranny of sin, so that sin is no longer your ruler. And so what he does is he starts off by saying, you've died to the old master You've died to the, to the realm where sin rules, and you've been raised into a new realm where Jesus rules, okay? Um, or he says, you've had one master at one time, now you have another master. So I just want to kind of look at, at uh, verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read through it, but just, just follow along his argument. The context really starts in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul speaks about two realms— the realm of Adam, law, sin, and death. And then there's the realm of Christ, grace, righteousness, and life. And through baptism into Jesus, through, through coming into a relationship with Jesus, we're raised with him into a new realm where he now reigns. We are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. We have been We no longer live in the realm of sin, Satan, law, and death. We live in the realm of Christ, grace, righteousness, and life. So 
we've died to the old boss. We've been raised in, an, in another realm, another domain, where Christ is king. All right? Now, let me just dive in just a little bit. Verse 7 seems to have caused so many people problems. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He's personifying sin here. He's not saying you've been, you've been set free from sinning. He's been saying you've died. Think of it this way. You have died to king sin. You've died to king sin. Right? Not you've died to sinning because that wouldn't make any sense because when you come to verses 11 through 14, what does he say? Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Offer the, the, the members of your body as instruments of righteousness, not instruments of unrighteousness. So he, there's still a battle going on. What's the deal? He said, the old man is dead. We're freed from the ruler called sin. All right, this has been helpful to me. I wish I remembered who taught this to me. Maybe when I was studying through Romans 6 and was reading. Um, Your relationship to sin has changed, but sin has not changed. Let me say that again. Your relationship to sin has changed, but sin has not changed. Your relationship to sin has changed. You're dead to King Sin. He's no longer your boss. Right? You've died from his realm. You've been raised in another where Jesus is king. Now, so you're no longer under the rule of sin. Your relationship to sin has changed. But sin has not changed. The nature of sin is to rule. And so you come to verse um, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He's saying your relationship to sin has changed. He's no longer king. But sin has not changed. He wants to be king. He's been dethroned, but he's trying to climb back up on that throne again. Now, verse 14, you know what grace means? He won't succeed. He'll never succeed. But he's sure going to try, and that's where your struggle comes in, you see? And so, what does this have to do with grace? Here's what it has to do with grace. Grace is that which took you from one realm to the other. You can't decide on your own. I don't like this realm. I'm going over to this one. Grace has to intervene. Grace has to raise you. Grace has to connect you to Jesus so that you die with him and you're raised in the new life. That's why grace does not mean you go on sinning because grace has made that transfer. You're now in a new realm. You're no longer under the tyranny of sin. You can say no to sin. I think one of the best illustrations I've ever seen of that is, um, well, his name escapes me now, pastor at Moody, used to be pastor at Moody Church, Erwin uh, Luther, talks about the fact that you live in this apartment building and um, the landlord collects the rent every, the first Tuesday of every month. But he sold the apartment building and now you have a new landlord and he collects the rent the last Thursday of every month. So now you have a new landlord. All of a sudden, it's the first Tuesday of the next month, and the old landlord shows up and knocks on the door and says, pay your rent. Can you? Sure you can. Do you have to? Nope, you can say, I don't owe you anything. That's what Paul is saying here. The old king is going to try to get your allegiance, and you can say, I don't owe it to you, right? Right? I don't know it to you. And so it is. 
then that grace then calls you to think and fight like free men. You're free. You can fight now. You're no longer a prisoner. You're no longer a prisoner, okay? You're free, you're free so fight like it. I, one of our elders one time, one time when I was teaching a science school class, really laboring this point, one of our elders came up, Charlie Fry. Charlie Fry is our mechanic theologian. Great guy, great guy. He came up to me and said this to me. So what you're saying, Pastor Tim, is not that we should strive to become something that we are not, but to become what we are. It's like, whoa, why didn't you teach this class, right? It would have been so much better. Stop trying to become what you're not. Become what you are. What are you? You're free. Live like it. You live like it. You live like you're free people. You're no longer under the tyranny of sin. Grace does that. That's why grace doesn't mean you're going to continue sinning. It means that grace has done this powerful thing of putting you to death in this realm and raising you in another so that now you're no longer under the tyranny of sin. Now you can fight sin. Now you can say, no, you're not going to rule any longer. You're not going to rule any longer. Can I give you one more illustration? John Murray, who I think is incredible, incredible theologian, wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. If you don't have it, buy it and read it. It's a tremendous book on the doctrine of salvation. He says this. When you're converted, um, Jesus then comes to the capital city and dethrones sin and Satan. Satan sits on the throne and he garrisons the capital city with, his, with sin. He says, when, Jesus, when you're converted, Jesus now sits on the throne and the city is garrisoned by the forces of righteousness. And the old king and his forces are chased out to the countryside where they fight a guerrilla warfare. You see, that explains your struggle with sin. You're no longer under the rule of sin. It's no longer your master, right? But it's still fighting you. It's still carrying on a warfare. All right? Now, I don't know about you, but that, that tells me grace gives me hope then, right? Grace then gives me hope that I'm free and I can fight. And because of this gracious work of transfer, we, we can now fight against sin. All right? Notice this as well, that grace always precedes effort. Grace always precedes effort. The structure of the epistles always indicate that. Um, there are always examples of, of how, and, and there are examples of how you help people with problems. You know what? I, this is just kind of a rant um, that I have, and that is I think the best hermeneutic for interpreting Scripture is a pastoral hermeneutic because the, the Bible is a pastoral book. You always look at it as it's addressed to problems, right? And what you find is these epistles and these writings are addressed to people who are struggling. And notice that, especially in the Apostle Paul, he always starts out with talking about what God has done for you before he starts telling you about what God expects from you. Okay? And you, they're, they're wed together. Grace, the grace of God, always precedes our efforts. Even Peter's that way. Peter, if you read the, 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 which is the textbook to people who are suffering, he starts off by saying, look at what we are, right? We've been raised to a new hope. We are, we are this 
holy temple. We are these spiritual stones being built up and so forth. And then he comes to that pivotal place in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, now let me give you the strategy. We're going to live life in such a way that the Gentiles will not be able to make any accusations against us. And then chapter 2, verse 13, to the end of the book, then he starts talking about what do we need to do in the midst of suffering. Same thing. He tells you about what God has done for you before he tells you what God expects from you. A great example of this in one verse is Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, where we read this. Put on, then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so become God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Right? Thank you. Someone had courage enough to say no. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Because you're chosen, because you're already holy, because you are already loved, because all that is true, now start doing this. Okay? Now start doing this. So grace precedes effort. Remember that the imperative of God's commands always grow out of the indicative of God's gracious work. Imperative, the voice of command, as opposed to indicative, what God has done. All right? It grows out of that indicative. So, duty and discipline grow out of God's grace. One uh, writer by the name of William Romain put it this, No sin can be crucified in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience, because there will be want of faith or lack of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. If it be not mortified, killed in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. In other words, what he's saying here is you have to be convinced that you're already pardoned. You have to be convinced that God already accepts you before you'll have the power to deal with sin in your life. So, grace then, as well, compels obedience, change, and growth, right? We all know what what Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say, right? That's, That's a pivotal passage for us where the Apostle Paul writes to us, um, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It is grace, then, that disciplines us. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that a fascinating concept? It's grace that's going to move us to say no to ungodliness, all right? And so the Apostle Paul clearly says that the dynamic of discipline is not laws or rules or self-discipline. It's not even your counseling homework. It's grace. Grace is the only thing that will motivate the discipline, the duty that we lay upon our counselees. Again, Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, says this, Paul said, though, that it is the very same grace, God's unmerited favor, that brought salvation to us in the first place that disciplines us. This means that all our responses to God's dealings with us and all our practice of the spiritual disciplines must be based on the knowledge that God is dealing with us in grace. And it means that all our effort to teach godly living and spiritual maturity to others must be grounded in grace. If we fail to teach that discipline is by grace, people will assume that it is by performance. Always remember that laws and rules and homework never change a human heart. 
Grace will change a human heart. Okay? So, fascinating passage that I love this. Colossians chapter 1. This is what the Apostle Paul says about his ministry. This is kind of what I've adopted as a description of what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him, speaking of Christ, Christ we proclaim. Warning, there's our word, nuthetao, counseling everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In other words, he says here, you must preach, you must teach, you must counsel Jesus. All right, now, that does not mean that you say, Believe in Jesus, and all your problems are gone. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we proclaim Christ in what ways? In that face-to-face private ministry, public teaching ministry, Jesus is what we talk about. Jesus has to be a part of your counseling. He has to be central in it. They say, what do you mean by that? Just look at the epistles. If you, if, you know what we tend to do? We tend to look at the book of Ephesians and talk about it like for four years. And so we lose focus. When they first heard the epistle of Ephesians, it was just they all sat down and it was read to them. And when you look at it that way, you see that all of what God says to us to do is connected to Jesus. Right? What are husbands supposed to be? Like? Yeah. And, and wives, by the way, when we talk about submission of wives, we want to go to Ephesians 5. I like to go to Matthew 26. Right? There's Jesus. What is he saying? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But what? Yeah, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Is there a model there for women? What about kids? Can they be like Jesus? I love Luke chapter 2, where it says that, you know, the, the, the story of Jesus getting left behind, right? His parents kind of get upset about that, and they go get him, and they bring him back. And then it ends that chapter with saying that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and what? Submitted to his parents. You know what you, know what you can tell children who say, my parents don't understand me? They don't understand me. Why do I have to, why do I have to obey these people? Um, well, I like to tell them, you know that there's this one child who was perfect in every way, and he had sinful parents. Do you think they understood him? What do you think? And a perfect child who has sinful parents, what did he do? He submitted, right? What about your work? What does Jesus have to say about your work? Well, Colossians 3 says, I'm working for Jesus, not my boss. The one I'm really wanting to work for is Jesus. See, Christ is so central. You'll have grace that'll be part of it if you're talking about Jesus. Right? You know what I love? One of, uh, the, one, I think one of the most significant books I ever read on preaching was written by Jay Adams called Preaching with Purpose. And he makes a statement in there that just blew me away. You ought to preach in such a way, okay? You ought to preach, and by implication, counsel in such a way, right? You ought to preach in such a way that if you preach that sermon in a Jewish synagogue or a Unitarian church, they'd be offended. 
because Jesus is so central. That's the way our counseling needs to be. That's how grace infuses our counseling. Okay? Grace is that which will bring about growth. It'll motivate. It'll give the fuel. God loves me because of what Jesus did, not because of what I'm doing. And that's going again, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? Which makes me think it's biblical. <laughs> and that is, once I get a grasp on that, I want to grow. I want to do what God says. If I see him as my father then I'll want to be what he calls me to be, right? Now, here's an important point. I think it's very important for us to get this because there's, because I'm, I'm guessing some of you were really nervous when you saw the title of this because there are some people out there who are, who are um, just kind of running the grace machine to the point where you don't do anything, right? I can remember reading one particular um, very influential Christian saying, Growth is doing the hard work of grasping my justification. The idea there, again, is so many people are preaching grace, so it sounds like, well, if you just, just get a handle on how wonderful God is in what he did in Jesus, you don't have to struggle anymore. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. What the Scripture teaches is this. Grace does not eliminate the struggle, but grace empowers the struggle. Do you see the difference? Grace will empower the struggle. Again, when you look at Romans 6, what does he say? He says, because of grace, you have died to sin. Verse 7, you've died to King's sin. You've died to King sin's authority. Now, you come to verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay? So grace does not eliminate the struggle. Grace empowers the struggle. There is still a battle. That's clear. You, you ignore Scripture, when you, when you give the impression, right, that, um, that there's no more struggle. Again, we're heading back into that pietistic kind of theology. Instead, instead, grace empowers the battle against sin. Note this as well, that grace gives the counselee hope for change. <coughs> God calls you to think and act like free men. And free men fight a whole lot better than people who are under threat. I got to do this or God will get me. No. I want to do this because I love my father. By the way, by the way, someone might say, well, isn't God displeased when we sin? Yes. Yes, he is. But you remember what Romans 12, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 12 talks about when it talks about the discipline that comes from God? Um, and it, by the way, it doesn't mean that you sin and then God brings something horrible into your life. It's just saying every time you have, every time there's suffering in your life, every time that's God treating you as you ought, it, it, treating you as sons, okay? Even when God is displeased and, and even if he brings things into my life, it's coming from what? His loving hand. There isn't, as a Christian, there's nothing I can do that, 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 um, now don't take me wrong here. As a Christian, 
God's not going to cut me off. He's my father. He's going he's to keep me, but he's going to bring me back sometimes in difficult ways. But it's all why. Because he loves us. So even if our father is displeased with us in our sin, he doesn't stop loving us, does he? It's still grace. Right? Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. What do our sins deserve? Hell. He's not giving us that. Right? So, um, we want then, we want then to, to see that there's really hope. Grace gives hope. I love what Jerry Bridges at one point says, is everything that comes into your life now comes from the loving hand of your Heavenly Father. Everything that comes into your life comes from the loving hand of your Heavenly Father. All right? It's all love that's coming our way. By the way, you can also explain one source of the counselee struggles. Romans 6 talks about being raised into a new life and so forth, but it still indicates that it's not quite all done. And counseling deals with the overlap of these two ages. Now, here's what I mean by that. When Jesus came, he brings the kingdom. The age to come has invaded this present age. Are you with me? When the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy in France and started making their way across France, wherever the Allies were, that was free France. But not all of France was free yet, was it? And that's the way the kingdom of God is. The age to come has invaded. It's made a beachhead. It's, it's made a beachhead here, right? Are you with me? Right? And so we live in the overlap of two ages. We're, we're experiencing the fruit, some of the fruit of the age to come, are we not? Love, joy, peace, kindness, all those things that will characterize the age to come. Those things, we're experiencing some of those things already, but not all of it yet. And so we can explain the source of their struggles. All right? So you're born into this old domain, right? But then when you're converted, you're brought into the new era, the new domain. And you're living in the overlap of those two. Even though I'm in the kingdom of Jesus, do I still have contact with the old? Yeah, I'm still in contact with it. People from the old domain, right? (laughs) Even my body is still in the old domain, isn't it? Uh, One of my brother elders stopped to see me yesterday. His name is Greg. He's a farmer. Great man of God. He says, man, we were loading hogs yesterday, and I was so tired. And I think, you know, I wasn't acting in the way that I should. Now, why? Because that body is weak and frail, and it, boy, it's a great source of temptation, isn't it? So we're still in contact with the old. We're living in the overlap of the ages. Now, listen, when I explain this to people, they get it, and they get hope. Because grace means... You're experiencing from the new age, but you're still in contact with the old, and you're still going to struggle. You're going to struggle until Jesus comes. All right? How long do I have? Am I supposed to be done at 11 or 11.15? Oh, great. Okay. 11.15. Okay. So there is this already not yet tension in our walk with Christ. That ought to give us hope. An already not yet tension. 
Now, let me say this. Since grace is central, your counseling ministry should reflect that. In what ways? Well, for one, you can have confidence in your counseling ministry. Now, I don't mean um, you can have more confidence when you go through the certification process. Like, oh, you really got it down, right? What I mean by that is this. You can have, I should put it this way. You can have confidence in your ministry of counseling with the word of God. Why? Because this is what grace does. Grace gives us new hearts. And what does Jeremiah 31 say? It talks about the new covenant where God's going to write the law of God on our hearts. And Ezekiel 36, it takes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. If grace is operating, and I'm, and I'm counseling believers, right? I can have confidence because grace has written the law of God on their hearts. I can have confidence because he's given them a heart of flesh that's going to respond to the word of God. You say, but I've had people that didn't respond. Well, maybe they're not believers, and maybe they're going to respond later, but you've had an impact, okay? Maybe they'll respond later to someone else's ministry, or they'll remember something you counseled them with. But grace has changed that person so you can have confidence in what the word of God can do. There's be a resonance between the external commandments of God and the commandments written on their heart. There's going to be a resonance there, right? Now what it's all about. And so you can have confidence in, your, in that kind of a ministry that, that you can reach them, okay? You must be gracious as you confront sin and encourage change. You must be gracious. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. George mentioned this earlier. Like, who would want to take the Corinthian church, right? Probably some young guy who really wants (laughs) who doesn't have any wisdom. But Do you ever notice how the Apostle Paul talks to these people as he starts out? It blows my mind. Let's look at it. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God. Okay, now wait a minute. Let's let's stop. This is the church where some guy's sleeping with a stepmother. They're going to court against each other. There's sexual immorality going on. There's divorce going on. Um, they're, They're dividing into factions. This is the church he's talking to. Right, And here's what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you believe how he's talking to these people? I thank God for you. You're saints. You've been set apart in Jesus. See, that's a gracious approach, isn't it? I have a pastor friend who says, obviously, he's being sarcastic. No, he's not. He's being gracious. 
He's being gracious. And you have to be gracious as you confront sin and encourage change. Okay? Now look. If you're like me, have you, have, have you all heard of the caged Calvinist stage? Does that sound familiar to you guys? So when you're first introduced to the doctrines of grace, right, um, you, you're like foaming at the mouth, and everything has to do with, with you know, the five points of Calvinism. And some of us, growing up in this, in this kind of a, a tradition that says, oh, yeah, well, there are some Christians who are saved, but they never live for God, and their lives are unchanged, and they're carnal Christians and all this kind of business. And then you come to the doctrines of grace, you go, No! If you're a Christian, you'll have fruit, right? And so what we tend to do sometimes in our counseling is when someone's struggling, we have a tendency sometimes to say, well, there's obviously no fruit. You're not a Christian. You've got to be very careful with that. You've got to be very careful with that. You've got to be very gracious as you confront sin and encourage change. And the question then becomes, when do you challenge somebody's faith? When do you challenge their faith? I think Matthew 18 is a really, really pivotal passage in this. Where it says, essentially we're told, you never, ever break fellowship with a professed Christian until the church has made a functional judgment. That is to say, it says to a person, you're acting, you're functioning like an unbeliever, so we're going to function towards you as if you are. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but we're going to treat you like that, okay? You never break fellowship with another professed believer until the church has the final say. Now, there's a whole other lecture on that. But that's what the scripture says. Now, what is the one sin, and I'm I'm indebted to Jay for this, what is the one sin that puts you out of the church of God? What is the one sin? There's only one. Do you know that? Matthew 18, 15 through 20 tells us there's only one sin that puts you outside of the fellowship of God's people. What is it? Refusal to listen. listen. Stubbornness, right? That's the only sin that puts you out. You go to your brother, you try to regain him, he what? Refuses to listen, so what do you do? You step it up, you bring a couple more people along. And what happens? If he refuses to listen, you take it to the church. The church gets involved. What happens if he refuses to listen to the church? Then we treat him as an unbeliever. Now note, it's when that person is stubborn that the church makes that judgment. Look over at 2 Corinthians 13. Again, when you're in the cage Calvinist stage, this is where you often go. Um, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, right? Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. But do you notice... Before he ever gets to that point, do you see what he says? This is what? The third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Does that ring any bells in your head? That's from Deuteronomy. That's from Matthew 18, right? So essentially what he's saying there is, I've talked to you three times now. And it's... um, that every charge has to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There they are. I've talked to you enough. You're being stubborn. Now, verse 5, examine yourself. So here's what I want to say to you. 
If grace is so central to our counseling ministry, then the biblical pattern seems to indicate that you don't challenge someone when he's struggling. You challenge someone when he's stubborn. There's a world of difference between a counselee who comes in and says, I have failed again. I failed. I've dishonored God. Am I going to say to that guy, you know what, we've been through this so many times, I really wonder whether you've been born again. I wouldn't. There's a difference between him and the other guy who says, yeah, yeah, I know. You know, I'm just kind of tired of this. And it may not even be that blatant. It may just be, yeah, okay. I, you know, I'm just not interested. All right? There's a difference between the two. And if grace is central, then you're going to challenge someone on the basis, I think, of stubbornness, not struggle. Okay? All right. So, What are we saying then? I think grace must be the controlling dynamic in your counseling. This is what's going to fuel growth. This is what's going to empower growth. This is what's going to help someone gain strength for the fight. This grace is going to empower the discipline that's necessary. So what I'm saying is don't back off from saying discipline yourself for godliness. Don't back off that No holiness, no sweat. But you've got to found that on grace. It's got to be firmly rooted in grace or it becomes legalism. And once I'm convinced, as Romaine says, I've got to be convinced that my guilt is pardoned. That will give me the power to put to death sin in my life. And then lastly, people change in an atmosphere of grace. They will change in an atmosphere of grace. And so grace needs to be central. All right. Well, um, I think we've got two minutes. So anybody had any questions? I'll give you two minutes for questions. Of course, the problem usually isn't the questions. The problem usually is the length of the answers. Okay, well, I guess you have a couple more minutes to look at books. Oh, there is a question. Yeah, fire away. Yeah, it's, it's the controlling dynamic in your counseling, okay? By the way, you know, and grace always makes people feel uncomfortable. I've got folks in our church sometimes who struggle with this, right? And, and, and they'll say something like this. The problem is we're talking too much about grace. All right? The problem is that person is, is sinning because we're talking too much about grace. And I, my response is too often they're sinning because of a wrong view of grace, not because we're talking too much about grace. They have a wrong view of grace. Okay? All right. You're dismissed. Got a break. Yes, sir. Section 2. A3. What is the words? I didn't see it come up. Okay. Anybody, anybody got that? Section Roman numeral 2. A. A. God's grace 
Is that it? You're very welcome. All right. I think you can go now.